with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black uh, hardcover Bible in front of you. It's page 961. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, that Bible is yours to take home. It is our gift to you. So at Cornerstone, we stand as an act of worship to read and receive God's word. And so would you stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 49. You can either follow in your Bible or it should be projected here on the screens. 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 35. Here now the reading of God's holy word. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would you pray with me once more? Father, again, would you cast our eyes on the resurrected Jesus? And when we are tempted to um, be bogged down by the worries of life and the pressures of tomorrow or the frustrations of last week, um, when the evil one wants us to focus on our unworthiness and guilt, uh, we look not only to the cross where we know those things were crucified with Jesus, but we look to the empty tomb where we know as he rose from death, he assured us that his promises to forgive us and to bring us to himself were truly fulfilled. Grant us this hour now a heart to receive and hear your word clearly. Encourage us, speak to us. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today is, of course, Easter Sunday. It's the day we remember the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the thing about the resurrection is that it's more than just a miracle that happened 2,000 years ago. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, it really and truly changed something. Jesus' resurrection introduced a profound truth to the world. Jesus showed us that death is not the final sentence to pass over humanity. That for those who trust in him, that there is life after death. 
And the thing about Christian hope, the thing about resurrection hope is that it's not just a hope solidified in the future, staying irrelevant to us in the present. The thing about Christian resurrection hope is that this future hope breaks into the present circumstances. It begins to break into today and it rearranges things. It makes hope tangible. And so being certain about the future means that your present is lived and understood and interpreted radically differently. That your present needs to be experienced in a new kind of way. Now what do I mean by that? I want to illustrate with a story about Johnny Erickson Tata, who is a Christian author, a Christian speaker as well. And when she was 17 years old, she was in a horrible diving accident uh, because she misjudged the shallowness of water and she jumped right in. And so for the past 50 years, she's been a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down and confined to a wheelchair. And despite all of these circumstances and, and all of this suffering that happened, she wrote a book called uh, Heaven, Your Real Home. And in it, she shares this powerful story, and I want to read it to you. She writes, I grew up in a little Reformed Episcopal church. Sunday morning worship was serious business, and I learned as a child what it meant to bend my knee before the Lord. I don't intend to make an issue of kneeling. God listens when his people pray standing, sitting, lying prone, or prostrate. What's my point about kneeling? It's just that I wish I could do it. It's impossible for me to bow in worship. Once at a convention, the speaker closed his message by asking everyone in the large room to push their chairs away from the tables and if they were able to kneel on the carpeted floor for prayer. I watched as everyone in the room, maybe five or six hundred people, hiked up their cuffs and got down on their knees. With everyone kneeling, I certainly stood out, and I couldn't stop the tears. I wasn't crying out of pity or because I felt awkward or different. Tears were streaming because I was struck with the beauty of seeing so many people on bended knees before the Lord. It was a picture of heaven. Sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump, dance, kick, and do aerobics. And although, and although I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise on tiptoe, there's something I plan to do that may please him more. If possible, somewhere, sometime before the party gets going, sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is like me? Johnny Erickson Tata has every right in her condition to live a life filled with fear and anger and bitterness because of her condition. And who could really blame her for feeling this way? It seems that life has been so unfair to her, and yet, and yet, because of her hope in the resurrection, because the future is so certain for her, it radically alters the way she's interpreting her life now. She could be filled with this kind of negativity, but it's replaced instead with joy and hope and anticipation. You see, this is an example of what the power 
the resurrection hope has in a person's life. And so let me ask you this morning, do you have a hope that radically changes the way you're living life now? Do you have a clear grasp and certainty of your future in such a way that your present experiences take on a whole new kind of meaning? You know, the Christian faith, the Christian gospel says that in Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, you can have that kind of hope with both clarity and certainty. You know, 1 Corinthians 15 is a complicated chapter, but in this chapter, Paul reflects on the resurrection and he speaks to why it matters. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is applying the events of Easter, this historical event 2,000 years ago. He applies it to our Christian lives now and he tells us why it's so significant. He fleshes out for us why the empty tomb and the risen Savior are so important and central to the Christian message. What is his main point? Let me summarize it in this gospel truth. Jesus secures for us a resurrection that is physical, new, and glorious. Jesus secures for us a resurrection that is physical, new, and glorious. And so as we reflect on this resurrection hope, I want to consider four things with you. Our resurrection is physical, it's new, it's glorious, and it's through Christ. So let's get started. Here's our first point. The resurrection is physical. If you have a Bible, please keep it open as we look back to it to see where we are getting our points from. So our resurrection is physical. Paul begins in verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now this kind of question you may have asked yourself. When I'm raised from the dead and resurrected, what will I look like? Will I be taller? Will I be shorter? Will I be more muscular? Will I be thinner? Will I have a full head of hair? Will I still have my freckles? Whatever question you may ask, and all of these are innocent questions, so to speak. But then Paul says something surprising in verse 36 when he responds, you foolish person. And it makes you wonder, what's the big deal? It's just a question, Paul. But Paul is responding this way because those who asked the question, they weren't asking out of curiosity of what the resurrected body would look like. They were asking out of skepticism and doubt. They were actually saying something like, can that even really happen? You see, in the Greek times, in the ancient Greek thought, the physical body was considered uh, to be a bad thing. It was a cage that imprisoned the soul, and so death actually meant liberation from the body. And so when the Christians came and they taught about a physical bodily resurrection, everyone began questioning, questioning it. Could it really be? And so this question is asked in skepticism and suspicion. They weren't asking about the appearance of a resurrected body. They were really questioning God's ability to resurrect anybody at all. Now, I think about it this way. Husbands, if, if your wife asks you, how do I look? You better know the right answer. You look beautiful, honey. Stunning. Gorgeous. Those are the right answers. You don't have to be married to know this. All the single guys who are writing sermon notes, this is the most important one. <laughs> but you better know the context in which she's asking the question. Otherwise, she'll know you're just lying or just saying these kinds of answers. Imagine your wife is getting ready to go to a dinner party and trying on outfits, and she asks, how do I look? The answer to that question is totally different than an answer to if she just bought a telescope from Amazon and she's setting it up and she's adjusting the knobs and she looks at you and says, how do I look? 
in that instance, if you say, you look beautiful, honey, it's not the right answer. How do I look is not a question of appearances, of ability. How do I look through this microscope? At which point your answer is not you look beautiful, but you know, the stars in your eyes are prettier than the stars in the cosmos. Something like that, that's the right answer. You see, her first question, how do I look, is asking about appearance. The second question, how do I look, is asking about ability. When the Corinthians here says, with what kind of body do they now come? They're not asking about appearance. They're really questioning God's ability to raise the dead at all. When they ask, how are the dead raised? They're really saying, listen, we know it's impossible. And so that's why Paul says, you foolish person. Don't you know the, the truth of Matthew 19, 26? That the things that seem impossible for us, faith tells us with God all things are possible. Paul is telling us that God can take something as ugly and as horrible as death itself and from it bring something new and glorious and beautiful. He can raise a new resurrected body. And the way he does it is that he uses death. Death is not a stumbling block for God. Look at verses 36 and 37, where Paul writes, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. And what Paul is basically saying is our dead body, when it's placed in the ground, is placed in the ground like a kernel that God uses to plant, to sow, that will lead to the fruit of our resurrected body. That when you're placed in the ground, your body doesn't just disappear or decompose. Just like when you rent a movie at home and, and you uh, go to make popcorn and you put those, uh, that popcorn bag in the microwave, two minutes you, you walk away. And as you begin to hear the popping slow down, you open the microwave door. What went in as hard, teeth-breaking kernels is now transformed. It comes out as fluffy, buttery, heavenly goodness. You don't put the bag of kernels in the microwave set for two minutes and come back to an empty bag. Those kernels take on a new form, a new kind of body. They're transformed. And Paul is saying that earthly death is when you take a still body, you place it into the ground as a kernel, but on the day of resurrection, God will raise it up in a new kind of way. And just as death wasn't the end of Jesus' story, it means it's not the end of your story either. Our bodies are laid in the ground in order to be sown for a future one. And George Herbert said that before the resurrection, death was an executioner ended our lives. But in light of Christ's resurrection, death is but a gardener, planting our bodies into the ground, sowing them in death to be raised one day in a bodily, physical resurrection. You see, this teaching is radically different than, than simply believing in something like reincarnation, that we are reincarnated to live in this life again nor is it simple mysticism or a new age kind of spirituality where you um, are raised again as a spiritual entity. You know, Paul insists to be raised to new life at the resurrection is to be raised with a physical new body. Which leads to this second point. Our resurrection is new. It's new. Now what do I mean by that? 
Now, this passage is a bit confusing, but if you're familiar with the Bible, particularly with the Old Testament, you may have caught up on a few themes that are seen here. Paul intentionally uses a lot of imagery from Genesis 1 and 2, creation imagery. So if you look at verse 39, here's an example of that. He writes, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. And you're thinking, okay, Paul, what's the point of that? But if you look at that order, if you remember in Genesis, something really interesting is happening. When God created, what order did he create in? Fish, then birds, then animals, and then humans. Paul is patterning after Genesis, and he doesn't stop with these themes. Right? In verse 40, he talks about heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Right? How does Genesis 1-1 start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 41, he talks about the glory of the sun and the moon and the stars, which are all created on the fourth day. In verses 42 and 44, he talks about the sowing into the ground, which is the very work Adam was created to do in the garden. Verse 45 says the first man, Adam, became a living being and calls him a man of dust, which all refers to the creation of Adam in Genesis 2. Simply put, what Paul is doing is here, he is referencing, when talking about the resurrection, he is referencing all of these creation images. Why? Because he's telling us the resurrection is a new creation. In the first creation, there was no sin in the world. There was no evil. There was no sickness. There was no darkness. There was no hate. There was no death. And Adam and Eve, they walked with God in perfect communion, perfect fellowship. In fact, in that original creation, God looked at the end of it and he pronounced over it, it is very good. Now, something has changed from that time to today, hasn't it? Because if you look out at the world today, you look at a newspaper, you turn to your social media, it is so difficult to say about the world, it is very good. How can you say that when there's so much division and hurt and pain and abuse and scandals and, and lies and losses? I mean, even this morning, hearing about the events of Sri Lanka reminds us that it's naive to look at the world and say, it's very good. And yet Paul is reminding us that through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that there is a hope for us that everything wrong with this world will one day be made new again. Peace and harmony and life and flourishing will mark humanity again. And this is tremendously powerful. You know, personally, in the past six months, I and my family have experienced um, both uh, the death of, of my paternal grandmother and my maternal grandmother. We, we've experienced the reality of death. It seems like it's been one after another. And it's been made very clear to me how fragile our bodies are, how the curse of sin that's entered into this world um, has run rampant with its decaying and deteriorating effects. And I know I can at least speak for my family when I say it's made us long for the new creation even more, when, when, when all the, the horrible realities of death and disease and, and destruction are, are kicked out, are expelled from this world. But the thing is, until that reality in this world, those things are sticking around. It isn't, isn't it true? Death and disease and destruction, they always catch up. You can escape these things for a while, but you can never outrun them. And it's not, it's not cynicism, but realism to face the facts. 
Cancer wins. Alzheimer's wins. Infection wins. Chronic pain wins. Old age wins. Death wins. There's only ever delay, never escape. And it doesn't just come at the end of life. The effects of sin aren't just seen and ex experienced in your last moments. For some, it comes at the moment of life. Those who are born with disabilities, blindness, deafness, muteness, those born paralyzed, suffering from all sorts of various health issues, those born with heart issues or breathing issues or autoimmune diseases or all kinds of disorders that plague us. And if you live long enough, you'll see these things either mark yourself or those you dearly love. There is only ever delay, never escape. Because everybody is a victim in some way to sin's devastating intrusion into this world. In our bodies, they are frail and broken. But one day, the resurrection is promising us one day everything will be made brand new. This is what the resurrected Jesus on Easter Sunday promises you. Now, this week I came across this video uh, that I want to show you. I don't uh, normally show videos. Uh, I don't think I've ever shown a video. Uh, but this one just, it, it just made me rejoice and long uh, for heaven. And I hope it does the same for you. And so it's just a, a minute or so clip that we could have up here. Watches this little boy hears his father's voice for the first time. Hi, Grayson. Talk to him, Daddy. Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you. <laughs> Daddy. Yes, here. Can you hear Daddy? Before this moment, Grayson Clamp had never heard a sound. That's you. <laughs> Grayson. Grayson was born without the auditory nerves that carry sound from the inner ear to the brain. Initially, he was fitted with a cochlear implant, but without nerves, it was ineffective. Bird, bird. That's when doctors at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine gave him this. It's an auditory brainstem implant. The device is typically used in adults whose nerves have been damaged and hadn't yet been approved for use in children. But that changed thanks to an FDA-approved trial. And Grayson became the first child in the country to undergo the procedure. Now, the video goes uh, much longer, and, and we could have watched all of it, but, but I showed just this clip because uh, I love videos like this. The, you know, these are the things that, that people send me and say, you know, have a good start to the week, uh, because, you know, Monday morning, your, your week has already started off so poorly, and you get sent videos like this or of puppy dogs, and, you know, they make you smile, they make your day, they lift your spirits. But, you know, for Christians, they do it in an entirely different way. Because for the Christian, it reminds us of the promise and the hope that one day, all who are deaf will hear the sound of their father's voice clearly. You know, in the resurrection, we're promised that one day, all who are blind will see in stunning brightness and clarity. The resurrection says that one day, those whose lives are marked with pain and physical suffering will feel all of that falling off from their bodies like scales. The resurrection says that one day those who are paralyzed will get up and run and jump and fall to their knees. There will be one day in this world when Christ comes back and he renews it again. 
And everybody longs for this kind of renewal and restoration. I, I think that's why so many of us place our hope in, in human advances, in, in human achievements, things like uh, technology and science and, and medicine and education and economics and, and politics and so on and so forth. We put all of our stock in it because we are longing for a bettering of our condition for the bettering of humanity. And in one, it's, to, to some extent, these things help in the progress. They, they can and they do help, but they will never take us where we really want to go. And they can't bring us to the place we really need to be. Because ultimately the reality is hope must come from outside of ourselves. And Easter is telling us where hope can be found. It's found in Jesus who in his own resurrection from the dead, he previewed for us in his body what a new creation would look like as his broken, crucified body was raised from the dead. You know, we see a vivid picture of this, one in living color from John's vision in Revelation 21, the hope of the new creation. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with, him, with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, are you longing for a day when the brokenness of this world, the brokenness and frailty of our own bodies will be expelled forever? Do you have hope, a kind of hope that breaks into your present and changes the way you live and understand today differently? Because if you have hope in Jesus, you have hope in the resurrection, it'll give you new strength because you know that where you are is not where you'll be. God is bringing us to this new creation. And we see in it that it is glorious. That leads to our third point. Our resurrection is glorious. You know, Paul goes on in verses 42 to 43 to contrast a few things. He says, For is it with the so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What Paul is saying is that in the resurrection, we will be raised to new life. And he uses these adjectives, imperishably, powerfully, gloriously. That the resurrection will be so glorious that the things of this world, the things we see now, especially our own bodies, will be considered perishable, dishonorable, and weak. That the resurrection glory will be so great that it will cast a shadow over the things now. Now, in one sense, you know, if you're out of shape like me and you say, well, my body is perishable, dishonorable, and weak, then, yeah, that, that's certainly true. But, you know, you look out, and there's so many people in this world who are fit and healthy. Uh, there's so many people who, you know, like yourselves, are beautiful and handsome. Uh, there are so many people who, who, who are young or those who age well. You know, we hate those people. But the reality is that every person, as perfect as they look externally, are considered despised 
when stood up against the glory of the resurrection. Because when we are resurrected, we enter a new kind of glorious existence. It's not just our bodies that will be glorified. The whole person will be glorified, inwardly and outwardly. So Paul writes in verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul is saying that one day in the resurrection, you will bear the image of Jesus Christ. The wholeness, the entirety of your being will be restored to look and radiate like Jesus. That it's an inward and outward renewal. It's an internal and external renewal. It's a spiritual and physical renewal. And our whole being will one day, not only in the way we look, but in the way that we speak and think and the things we do will radiate with the beauty and glory of Christ. You know, when you write an email or you write a letter, you always write at least a draft. You know, it's different than sending a text message or something. You write at least a draft. If you're going to write an essay or a paper, you probably write at least two drafts. If you're writing a book or an article to be published, a dissertation to be defended, you write multiple drafts. And the point is that it takes a lot of editing to get something ready, to get something perfect. You know, something a friend of mine said to me that's always stuck out. I'm sure I've even said this here to you guys a few times. But, but he said to me, in this life, you and I are only ever a draft of our final selves. What, is, what are you saying is you, you and I won't ever fully be ready. We'll, we'll always need editing in our lives. We'll need editing in our character, editing in our deeds, editing in our speech, editing in our thoughts, editing in our health, editing in our appearance. We always need editing. We are never the final form of what we are meant to be. And until the resurrection, we are works in progress. None of us are perfect. None of us are yet glorified. But at the day of resurrection... When we bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus will complete us and present us to the Father as the final draft of ourselves. There'll be no need for further editing in your life because you will be raised gloriously. You see, outwardly and inwardly, there will be no inconsistency. You will radiate with the beauty and glory that reflects our perfect Savior, which means that in you there will be no sin left clinging and on you there will be no scar left unhealed. In you there will be no addiction unconquered. On you there will be no ailment that is unremoved. In you there will be no depression remaining. On you there will be no disease uncured. This is the hope of resurrection glory, a renewal inwardly and outwardly, and it will be glorious. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien, he wrote, of course, that famous series, The Lord of the Rings. He wrote an, an essay that's, that's not very well known in, in 1947 called On Fairy Tales. Um, and when he wrote this, uh, he, he wrote this article because at that time in the 40s, uh, J.R. Tolkien was actually being criticized by all of these academics, all these literary critics, because, because back then the, the genre that he was writing in, fairy tales, he calls it, or fantasy or science fiction, uh, they considered that to be children's literature. They said, you know, th that fantasy, Fantasy, those fairy tales, that's not worth serious academic consideration. Those are childish. But Tolkien was obsessed with this because he kept contemplating the question of why so many people were drawn toward sci-fi and fantasy and fairy tales. Why do people long for it? And in his essay, he writes, it's because fairy stories have in them things that appeal to our heart's longings. 
He says these kinds of stories, they stir our deepest desires because these desires are written on our hearts. And he identifies five of them. He says, in every human being, we long for these five things. One, people want to step out of space and time. Two, they want to hold communion with other living things, meaning non-human things. Three, they want love that doesn't part and leave. Four, they want good to triumph over evil. And five, they want the great escape of death. And Tolkien said that any story that has these things, people want to hear it. They crave it. They desire it. It moves them. And the reason is because all people at some deep inner level in the heart, they know that this is how the world really should be. They know, whether they admit it or not, this is how the world was meant to be. And then he goes on to say that the Christian gospel is so powerful, not only because it speaks to these things, but because the gospel assures that these will all come true one day. You want to step out of space and time? The resurrection promises that in heaven you will have eternal life. You want to hold communion with non-human beings? Heaven will be spent in the presence of angels in fellowship with God himself. You want a love that doesn't part and leave? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ who gave up himself so we could be with him forever. You want good to triumph over evil? Jesus did exactly that when he died on the cross and broke the power of evil, sin, and death over us. You want the great escape of death? The resurrection of Jesus promises that all who look to him in faith will be raised with him to a new, eternal, and everlasting life. You see, Easter reminds us again how glorious the resurrection is because it actually fulfills the very longings of our hearts. And the good news is not only that these things can come true, but these things can be yours. And here's the thing, you may not believe the Christian faith, you may not uh, be convinced this is real, you may still have some doubts and questions, but at least can you concede on this point? Wouldn't you want these things to be true? Because if you want these things to be true, then isn't the story of Jesus, the promises of Jesus worth looking into? Isn't it worth further consideration and honest investigation? It really is. So the question is, how do we get it? How can this resurrection hope be yours? And I'll end with this last point. Our resurrection is through Christ. In verse 45, Paul contrasts two people when he says, thus it is written, the man, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You know, the last Adam refers to Jesus Christ here because Jesus served a role very similar to that of Adam. Adam in the garden was man's representative and Jesus is mankind's new representative. You see, because Adam failed to obey God and through him sin entered the world. But when that happened, God responded in grace. When the first Adam failed and in his disobedience brought sin into the world, God's response was to send his one and only son, Jesus, the last Adam, to do what the first Adam failed to do. So despite the first Adam's disobedience, Jesus came and he fully and 
perfectly and finally obeyed God. And part of that obedience was to die on a cross in our place so that the sin we were born with could be forgiven and the evil in the world could be defeated. You see, death entered through the first Adam, but death ended with the last Adam. When he rose from the dead, Jesus showed that everybody who trusts in him by faith can share in his resurrection life. And when he makes this promise, Jesus does not promise that in this life you will never die. He promises that death will never be the last word. That it is merely a doorway into a greater, more glorious reality. And so Dan Ortland writes this. For a Christian, death has been transformed from bitter-tasting poison to bitter-tasting medicine. From a piercing sword to the heart to a piercing but life-giving syringe. In both cases, there is pain. But one is pain unto destruction, the other pain unto restoration. One is a doorway into darkness, the other a wardrobe into Narnia. Through Jesus, death is merely a door that swings open, leading into resurrection life. Do you remember when you were a kid and you would fall asleep in the back of the car? You were so tired. It was probably only 8 o'clock, but you were a kid and you were tired. And you would fall asleep in the back of the car. And as your parents pulled up to the driveway, in order not to wake you and say, get up out of the car, they would gently pick you up. And they would walk you through the door and they would place you in your bed. See, they did all that. But what was the experience for you? In the back of the car, you close your eyes. The next time you wake up, you're in your bed. You're in your room. Death is simply that. That we close our eyes here on earth and Jesus Christ in his resurrection carries you into heaven. So when you open your eyes again, you are in your bedroom in the Father's house. That's the promise. That's the hope of resurrection glory. Jesus secured this hope for you. This hope can be yours. If you would only believe. You know, I'll, I'll close with this. Uh, James Lipton, he hosts a show called Inside the Actor's Studio where he interviews different um, actors, directors, and screenwriters. And he always ends the show in the same way. He asks whoever is the guest a list of 10 questions. And in 2013, he interviewed uh, the actor Jake Gyllenhaal. And he asked uh, the last question, which is always this. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say to you when you arrive at the pearly white gates? And I love Jake Gyllenhaal's answer because it's so short and so simple. And it was this. You ain't seen nothing yet. You see, we've yet to scratch the surface of the incredible nature of the hope we have in Jesus. 
If you have resurrection hope, it, it, it does something to your present life now. It, it's a f- future hope that breaks in and, and begins to rearrange things so you live life differently because it reminds you that everything in this life, all of the wonders of this life, but all of the suffering of this life, and then all of the joys of this life, but also all the sadness of the life, all of the triumphs of this life, but also all the failures, failures of this life, uh, everything in your life will one day be swallowed up in the greater glory of the resurrection. And although we see resurrection glory in glimpses and snapshots now, one day we will experience it in fullness. And when hope gives way to sight on the final day, we will hear God and welcoming us, beckoning us into heaven and in saying to you, friend, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's the hope of Easter Sunday. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that this day we get to spend this hour meditating and reflecting on the glories of Christ's resurrection. He is alive, and in Him, that means our hope is alive. Give to us, Lord, this day just a sense, just a taste of the hope of that resurrection so it would fill us anew so that everyone who came in here with a head defeated, feeling like failures, feeling tired and broken and worn out would, would be renewed again. Anyone who comes in, Lord, thinking they don't need you because life is good and I enjoy all the luxuries uh, and comforts of this world, we pray, God, that the hope of Easter and the hope of the resurrection would have shown just how small those earthly pleasures are. So in either case, as we were called to at the beginning of this worship, help us, Lord, to cast our eyes and our minds on the things that are above Christ, who is resurrected, seated at the right hand of the Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, receive God's benediction. Now may the grace of our risen Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father Almighty and the Spirit who in His power raised Him from the dead. May the blessing of the triune God be with God's people both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Hear the words of dismissal. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace, friends.